Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is writer-director Elegance Bratton, who came to TIFF in September with The Inspection, a very autobiographical drama starring Jeremy Pope as a young gay black man who joins the Marines to prove himself to his mother, but finds himself forced to repress everything about who he is in order to belong, even as he's drawn to his drill instructor. It's in theaters now, and opening at the TIFF Bell Lightbox this Friday, December 9th. Elegance chose Douglas Sirk's Imitation of Life, the director's 1959 remake of John M. Stahl's 1934 adaptation of Fanny Hurst's novel about the tangled lives of a white woman, her black housekeeper, and the housekeeper's mixed-race daughter, and the way that race informs every single aspect of their lives in contemporary America. With Lana Turner, Juanita Moore, and Susan Coner in the roles originally played by Claudette Colbert, Louise Beavers, and Freddie Washington, it's a piercing study of thwarted dreams and divided loyalties painted in the swelling emotional colors that were Cirque's hallmark. You know the drill. This is someone else's movie. Well, um, for me, Imitation of Life deals with things that I, issues that I find really fascinating, uh, primarily issues of identity and passability. And, and it really interrogates the notion of like blackness as, as kind of like an oppositional, if not inverse of whiteness. And, and, and there's just this commentary about the American dream within it uh, that I find really, really fascinating. And um, yeah, and then, you know, beyond that, the Douglas Sirk version of it, I thought the color palette was really special. Um, there's all the zeitgeist around the actors themselves. The fact that they had a white woman playing a black woman in a movie about a black woman playing a white woman. I mean, it's it's highly problematic, but nonetheless really interesting. So, yeah, those were the reasons I, I love this film. Yeah, when you chose it, I have to admit, I thought immediately, it's like, oh, it's okay, yeah. I mean, the inspection's about passing in a completely different way. Yes, yes. The imitation of life is never rooted in the fear of being outed in the same way. I mean, mm-hmm. it's there. Well, it's very much there, especially in the second one, because Sarah Jane gets bloodied. And I mean, it seems that they're alluding to the fact that she's raped in the film as well. I think so too, yeah. But she because- comes out and, and she confronts it, right? It's, it's not about hiding it in the same way. I, I, not exactly. It's, it's the, yeah. the structure. I'm, yeah, I was trying to figure out what the framing of it would be. But the structure of the inspection is that an entire institution is pressing down on these characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also a localized, specific institution. He can leave the base. And right. Sarah Jane can't leave anywhere. Like she's never free of it. So she mm. starts leaning into mm. I'm as white as you, I'm as, uh, all that stuff that is mm. valid from her perspective, but not from anyone else's. So she can speak her truth, but no one will listen to her, which I found mm. in the Cirque film, especially really just powerful and strange and weighted and yeah, problematic now, right? Because what is it, 60 years later? And well, and then there was a massive amount of protest over the actress Sarah Susan Coner. Susan Conner, excuse me. Yeah, but there was a ton of controversy about Susan Conner. People weren't happy that this white woman had this role, especially in a Hollywood to where, you know, the the color politics of it all, most popular Black actresses, especially at that time, were p- pretty fair-skinned, if not passable, you know? So it's like it wasn't hard to find somebody who could have played the part. So, you know, I think, I think um, if anything... In a world of Rachel Dolezal, it might be slightly less controversial now. Like, you know, certain celebrities are basically famous for transitioning 
from whiteness to blackness, you know, um, not going to name any names, but there's dozens of them at this point. So I think that, you know, in the 60s, yeah, there was a, a definite a, a reaction of the black community to Hollywood for not only championing this possibility, but then also nominating her for an Academy Award, you know? Yeah, her, I mean, she was, it's kind of weird to, to, her, open her story up like she was Hollywood royalty sort of she was mm-hmm. Lupita Tovar's daughter uh, oh, wow. so she was born uh, from a Mexican-American mother and a Hungarian born film producer and she's actually the mom of the Whites brothers the guys who made the American Pie films oh are you serious yeah it's this really strange hiccupy legacy I only found out about it because I introduced a screening of one of Chris White's films, mm. Paul White's films, one of uh, one of the White's brothers' films, and he just brought it up out of the blue, and it's like I had no idea he was Lupita wow. Tovar's grandson, and wow. still not black, but in 1959, like of color enough, I suppose. But yeah, it mm. was it was a contentious casting choice at the time. Right. It's just one right. of those things where when you unpack this story, it gets actually stranger because they chose a woman of color who still wasn't of African American descent. I didn't even realize that. I thought she was white. I had no idea. Wow. That's so interesting. It's so weird. It's weird. But it's also the thing about it, I think, that's also relevant to the time we're in now, where there's so much conversation about, you know, do you hire gay actors to play gay? Do you hire obese actors to play obese? And so on and so forth. That, you know, we, we, we realize that these questions are not new. And that, in fact, you know, the the it's almost like the beauty industry as well. Like there was a long time when people were saying that, oh, we don't need to see plus size models because people aren't aspiring to be plus size, so that would affect ourselves. And then we find out that actually women love seeing other plus size models and are really happy to get behind it. I think there's a similar kind of thinking around, you know, racial representation and and sexuality and gender representations in film. Like the idea that, you know, a, a gay man could not be a credible leading man an out an out gay ca- actor can't be a credible leading man is, is a similar type of speculation that states having you know a light-skinned you know passable black woman playing a light-skinned passable black woman may not go but we're also talking about a, a moment in american history where things are very segregated like would this movie been able to play in certain parts of the south if they had an African-American woman playing the part, you know? So it's a chicken, it's hard to determine is it chicken or the egg, right? Is the society racist? And then as a business, Hollywood has to then cater to a client, a clientele that holds these worldviews, right? Mm-hmm. Or is society broadcasting a worldview and affirming that worldview by making these, um, what some people will call inauthentic choices. Yeah, and uh, like at the same time, you have Mahalia Jackson in this movie, just yes. just being Mahalia Jackson in full flower, and and it's in, like now it plays like archival footage where you captured this performance, um, which I would have assumed would play to black audiences, like that mm-hmm. would be a selling point for the film at the time, right? And right. that's the the push and pull of race, class, gender, all these pieces that are are kind of clunking around because it's 1959 and everybody's being so on the nose with so much of it and still not discussing other things. Mm-hmm. It's um, 
it's not Douglas Sirk's best film, I, I don't think, by a long shot, mm. but it, it does feel like the culmination of all the stuff he'd been working on and and the, the melodrama that he crafted where everything is pitched to 11 and all the emotions are running high. And mm. in this case, more so than almost any of his other films, the issues being talked around or brought forward are like serious life and death issues. These are things that genuinely matter instead of you know, domestic issues are small problems that, that get amplified into the stuff of drama in his earlier films. Well, to me, you know, Douglas Sirk, there's a huge conversation around, you know, white fragility and, and how this is like perhaps the final frontier of creating an America that could perhaps reflect the values that it claims to stand for, you know, for every American citizen. And I think, um, Douglas Sirk's oeuvre overall is very much built within that very notion of it, it is it is explanatory or descriptive uh, or rather illustrative of what white fragility looks like, you know, in, in like the social, political kind of economic realm. I'm thinking of what is the Jane Wyman movie with Rock Hudson? I think they did two together. But uh, one is a suburban fantasy set in Connecticut. He's like a a tree guy. He works on trees. Oh, that's, yeah, All That Heaven Allows. All That Heaven Allows. I think Far From Heaven, Todd Haynes' movie, is in conversation with that. But, like, you know, in that film, the relationship between Wyman and Hudson is also murky and strange because Hudson, as we know now, is very much an active gay man. And... Cirque, you know, a lot of the payoff of this high drama that he's doing is built around the desirability of an older Wyman to a younger man. That's kind of the fantasy that she's selling, but he could never really desire her in real life. And, you know, it's just, it's just interesting how Cirque kind of was already, is kind of, to me, one of the best at playing in the, the palette of, of erasure and capital an aspiration that I think, you know, the classic Hollywood film does, you know. And the dynamics he's always using are so, sorry, the dynamics he was so fond of using Mm -hmm. are intimate and small, right? They're always, like, he makes movies in living rooms and bedrooms, mostly living rooms, though, because Mm -hmm. that would be a bridge too far in some cases. And this one expands it a little bit more as well. He's, like, Mm -hmm. he's working with a larger palette. He's working over over years Mm -hmm. and and generation like the whole thing of generational conflict i I caught like pieces of stella dallas in here too because there's Mm -hmm. another story in the background of a mother sacrificing herself for her daughter's happiness Mm -hmm. but it's really interesting having gone back and watched the original film a little while ago to see Mm -hmm. how cirque shaped this one the remake what uh 25 years later Mm -hmm. into what we recognize instantly as a douglas cirque story Right. He he's changed a few things. He's kept the bones of it, uh, and the Stella Dallas aspect of it was there. It's even crueler in the in the text because she doesn't come back for the funeral. She just mm. never sees. She doesn't even have that moment at the end of the film where mm. she gets to acknowledge how much her mother meant to her. Um, and I I kind of feel like all of Cirque's choices are right for this film for mm. all the alterations and all the ways he twists it into his own thing. It's like a Hitchcock adaptation. You can only get the thing that Hitchcock does from Hitchcock. And I don't think Cirque was willing to consider restoring other elements. And he just kept planing it down into the version of the movie that's all about the family. Well, back to this idea of like, you know, um, you know, white fragility. I think a huge component of that is a genuine uh, 
fear and um, discomfort dealing with race directly, mm-hmm. right? Particularly imagining a future where you know people of color could live independently of the white gaze, right? Even though it's, um, and that's not to say like independently of white people, but a kind of oppressive nature of that white gaze, whether that gaze is criminalizing you or sexualizing you, no matter what, it's othering you. And, you know, there's a fear of letting it go because if that's gone, a lot of the power that people think they hold also goes away. And I think Cirque's avoidance of the issue of, of, of race as a, as because I think the first Imitation Life is much closer to making a movie that could potentially um, challenge the racial hierarchy in America because that message is so much more about, to me, at least uh, the commodification of blackness and um, particularly, um, what is it called? Appropriation, right? I mean, her mm-hmm. maid comes up with Juanita's, Stella, I, I get confused, but nonetheless, she comes up with a recipe for pancakes that the actress whose career is now gone up and is on the decline takes advantage of. And I, and it's again, and it's very ahead of its time because we're living in a world now where celebrity branding is like such a thing. Yeah. And a lot of that is not necessarily the face that you're seeing sell it. There's a lot of people in the background who hopefully are being taken care of as they make celebrities into billion dollar, you know, all sorts of billion dollar brands that are now dominating, you know, consumer choices. So it's just interesting how in that version of it, there's a direct unavoidable conversation around the appropriation of you know, black excellence, black brilliance, black black ingenuity, right? Like you're in a system to where even as the, the way the story is set up, you know, she's homeless, she finds a, a white woman who's kind, she gets a job, you know, all of that is because she's under the gun of a system that has no place for her to really experience the American dream. So she has to find something to hold on to. And then once she gets there, of course she excels. She has this great idea, pancakes. But unfortunately, we all know that the system is the way it is and that nobody will eat your pancakes if Claudette Colbert doesn't put her face on the box and doesn't acknowledge you. I think that is much more um, direct and pointed to the problem of race than Cirque's version. Cirque's version presents um, the Black problem as something that can exist in perpetuity, right? Like there's no there's no ending of this. There's no suggestion that Sarah Jane or Juanita Moore could ever somehow figure out a way out of this trap, right? But instead is put forth for the white gaze to ask the white audience, is this the world we want to live in? Can you accept the way that it is forever? What if everybody, what if what if what if you don't get the chance to live out your form of 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 penitence for what you benefit from? Does it serve you? <laughs> you know? <laughs> like well, and retroactively now, I keep thinking with the pancake stuff in the first film. I keep thinking right. of the way Aunt Jemima's syrup was marketed, yes, like with a stereotypical yes. black mammy yes. image on the on yes. the box, uh, which was only just recently dealt with in, in you mm. know in the progress mm. of that uh, that corporate entity. But at least Aunt Jemima's relatives got paid. I mean, I'm, I'm not getting into no, whether or not the images are you know the images are what they are. You know, this is the way that you know the black american body for a significant portion of this country's history was under ownership of white folks that was the only way that it could be legible in the society so 
the the situation of like having the pancake recipe taken is not even taken. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not taken. Anything she does as your property is your property, or is it? Right. I mean, certainly in 1934, it, it was assumed, right, that that was right. that was fine. And Cirque's stuff is more. Yeah, he's not interested in the corporate stuff, right? Like he's just not interested in the way that that things are commodified. He sees it entirely in emotional terms, which I think is why the new version or the the, the 1959 version works, and, yes. and and I think is stronger. And you know, I have, we were talking about this before we started recording, but somehow this this version is not being included on the Criterion edition that's coming out of the 1934 film, which I assume is they're planning to release another one later. But it's so strange that that in this moment that that's the one getting foregrounded. Whereas the one that seems to speak more emotionally to me anyway, and maybe mm-hmm. that is because it focuses entirely on the emotions, um, is the one that's sort of just being well, shrugged at. entirely on the emotions of the white people. Of the white people. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't <laughs> you know pretend that's not a thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, 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 it, but it, but that's the other thing about it too, is that makes Cirque such a great, I think, queer filmmaker as well, because he's working within a system of censorship of, mm-hmm. of, you know, and and thick, dense censorship. You know, the the early of the of the hate, the early years of the Hayes Code. You know, so in that regard, there is a limitation on what can be said explicitly. So he must rely on dense, hyperbolic subtext to be able to underline what he wants the audience to be paying attention to in terms of the emotional development of his characters. So you know, again, and it's just it's just th- this film is just great because it's the perfect vehicle to kind of take the temperature of Hollywood while also taking the temperature of the culture mm-hmm. through, and, and, and mind you, like, and also like the kind of uh, salacious celebrity element of this film, right? You've got um, Lana Turner cashing in on public perception of her own sacrifices. I, this is right. This is after she gets acquitted for her daughter. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> her daughter killing her boyfriend. <laughs> you want to pull up the allegedly's here? That's okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah please put up the allegedly's. I want to um, say yes because that was the late forties, wasn't it? When that happened? Yeah, I think so. I think so. But but all that to say, you know, watching Lana Turner make this sacrifice for her daughter, there's a very shrewd kind of business to that in terms of like attaching to Lana's public the person who would spend money to spend an hour, two hours with Lana Turner, right? You've got that buy-in as well, which is another kind of like ahead of its time, you know, almost Warholian approach to fame and infamy, right? Um, And then you've got Sandra Dee as, you know, the virginal white girl that everybody's trying to, the whole culture is caught up in saving her purity and keeping her pure and keeping her safe. Mm-hmm. And then you got the backstory of her. The more and more her life started to play out, the more we realized that, you know, things aren't always what they seem. So I think Cirque is very good, even from a casting perspective, right, of being able to kind of work within this, like, system of of censorship to say so much more between the lines than I think most people are are able to to appreciate when they watch this film. Yeah. Also, I was wrong. Uh, the Stompanato killing and inquest was fifty seven, fifty eight. So this was the very next film that was released. Like she made right. this immediately afterwards, right? Um, and uh, I hadn't realized it was that close together. Um, just a matter of months, apparently. And uh, she, according to the um, according to Wikipedia, which is the greatest uh, yes. advantage yes. known to any critic. Uh, <laughs> 
Wikipedia has here that um, uh, she suffered a panic attack on her first day of filming uh, because she was coming back to it. And uh, quote unquote, uh, given the recent events of her personal life, it was too difficult for her to, to, to play through it. But it ended up getting her incredible support from critics and audiences because everybody loves a comeback story. And yeah. as awful as everything yeah. had been for her, this sounded like the role that that reconfigured her and repositioned her for, for the rest of her career. Yeah, big time, big time. All press is good press, as they say, I, right? I suppose. <laughs> it's just, it's one of those things too, where you, you know, later you watch the film and you watch somebody being an actor, like doing mm-hmm. their job and, and being mm-hmm. convincing as another person. And I, I don't know, I, there's a, there's a tendency to, to put more on it when somebody's going through something in real life. But mm-hmm. I almost wonder if this isn't a release to just get away from everything and pretend to be somebody else for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, the thing about it is the great actresses, great actors, they have the innate quality of that, of who they are as human beings that kind of, I think at least movie stars, right. Bring, a lot of themselves, character to character, part to part, film to film. So, you know, but that's that's the fun part about Douglas Sir for, for me and something I'm interested in doing as a storyteller. I like I like the idea of like messing everything up, of pushing everything into an, uh, the most uncomfortable gray. Because people think sometimes settling in the middle is like the peaceful place. But in my experience, the middle can be even more emotionally chaotic because you have to hold contradictions and still stay in the middle. You know, and I think Cirque is a really has a really good job of like piercing the screen and making what happens on that sixty foot screen feel way more personal and invested than just some movie playing in a theater. Right? This is Lana Turner. You saw her in the tabloids. This is Race in America. Like, and we're talking like nineteen fifty nine. The next five years by by nineteen sixty four, the Civil Rights Act is about to be passed. Yeah. You know, and and and. And very soon after that, black exploitation cinema is about to come, you know? So Cirque is kind of like towing the line on some very volatile issues that are about to explode in the country. And he's giving you a polite middle-class afternoon, uh, you know, thought feast, if you will, right? Fashion, glamour, it's it's all dressed up in this kind of Pepto-Bismol color palette, (laughs) <laughs> and, it, you know, it's just, it makes it easy to go down. It kind of eases the indigestion of a society that's about to experience, you know, uh, chaotic change. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to tell you about the latest Shiny Things newsletter, my twice-weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming thing. Last week, I caught up to Olivia Wilde's Don't Worry Darling and dug into new discs of Save the Tiger, Pretty Baby, Testament, and Nobody's Fool, the latest Paramount catalog titles resurrected by Australia's Via Vision. Sign up for the 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. I miss writing about movies. Come check it out. I, I once described, I think it was written on the wind, um, as the kind of movie that if it was a person, it has just dressed for dinner and it's sitting down and it's about to throw up. Like it's yeah. just, <laughs> it's, there's a gentility to it, right? Like you right. wear gloves when you drive the car, you dress right. nicely to go to the store. And then right. inside you're just 
you know something's wrong and something's coming. And somebody else described all of Cirque's films as movies where everybody can hear a clock ticking. Mm -hmm. They just mm -hmm. don't know what it's counting down to. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, well, that's the other thing too. His movies are like, I'm a big drag enthusiast. Um, okay. Uh, very much interested in, I, I personally believe every human being is in some form of transition at every point of their life. So it breaks my heart that trans people get treated so poorly because they 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 have the audacity to wear it in public, whereas most people are going through these processes in private. Whether it's you know getting younger to getting older, you know you have a job, you lose a job, you're if you're promoted now, you're superior, you were inferior. You know we're all kind of going through all of these modes, you know. And I think what Cirque is really good at doing is um, animating that process of identity and code switching mm -hmm. and making it feel it just it's like back in the day when times square I, i'm not that old but i remember <laughs> times square being a lot more not for kids than it is now and you would go into these theaters and if you just look straight in front of you the reds are sumptuous you know the 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 details on the on the the, the stage itself you know the little you know appliques that they put on it are really really beautiful and then you get closer and you realize oh wow there's a rat under that curtain over there oh my god the curtain has a hole in it that's not just pitch black side by side he's holding the beautiful and the grotesque and slowly but surely he starts to kind of put them over one another yeah and i find that to be really fascinating and compelling i always wondered how much foreknowledge he had of how these films would play i mean you know do, do you cast rock hudson because you're playing the joke on the audience of a man with no sexual attraction to the, the leading ladies, as, as you mentioned, and then just leave it there floating? Does that inform the performance or does that inform the entire film? Is it a message from the past to the future that someday mm. all of this will be okay? And and I, I want mm. him to have that level of foresight. I don't think anyone did. I mm. think everybody thought that the, you know, the secrets would stay hidden and that was like Hollywood functioned on burying secrets right. at the time, right? right? There, were, there were studios and magazines that owned each other in order to keep things squeaky clean and, and and create an image that no one could attain. Right. But now it feels like they feel like John Waters movies in a way, like they're so stilted and emotionally, but um, with an aesthetic that functions. It's, you know, you look at David Lynch and he's doing what Cirque used to do. Yeah. He's not, he's not doing it ironically. I think this is how he makes movies. And it's the way he right. functions, but that's the template that everybody is sort of subverting or rebelling against. This is how they remember the movies of the fifties, even though Cirque was the only one really doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I always, I have the motto that whoever's holding the camera is telling their own story all the time, no matter yeah. what genre is. And is it a Marvel movie? Is it an art house movie? It, it, it's totally irrelevant. I think the the filmmaker is telling you about themselves uh, no matter what, constraints of genre or censorship are upon them and i think i do think it is a message from the past to the future because all of these men were involved with each other and 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 honestly i think there's something else in search especially in limitation of life I, what does sarah jane go to the city to do for a living what is she really doing you know she's a showgirl and and where i come from oh, yeah, yeah. showgirl is a very amorphous term it is, you know, it's it's like I, I know girls today. I know a lot of a lot of my friends and boys who call themselves entertainers, and what they mean is they're exotic dancers, they're strippers, mm -hmm. you know, or they might even be even more so sex workers, right? And you know, Cirque is clearly adept at the kind of 
um, arch- archetypes, the tropes of Hollywood, the stereotypes of Hollywood, particularly the tragic mulatto girl, like who is her father even? And there's something about her very existence that speaks to the possibility of, I'm not going to go so far as to say, you know, Juanita Moore's character is necessarily having sex for money, but we know she's a maid and we know she, being a maid, she's most likely to work for white people. And she has this, you know, 18 year old daughter who's to say that one of her bosses and her, that her boss didn't get her pregnant. Is this girl the, the product of rape? You know, there's a way that he deals with sex and sexuality that both suggests the transactional and the repressed and almost only transactional and repressed. It's very rare that you see characters, maybe Jane Wyman in The Battle of the Brakes, maybe that's the one. Maybe that's the one where she's really sexually, somehow sexually empowered. But even that, she has to deal with the ridicule of her community. <laughs> you know, yeah, and a, and a man in her employee as well, right? Like yes. even, even without, e- even if you remove the pressure, because it's clearly the two of them are consenting to this relationship, it right. starts with him and her employee. You're right. Well, it's a power dynamic, right? And 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 there's, and there's got to be a question of pleasure in that too. Like if, because like if you, the more and more you read about a person like Rock Hudson, yes, he was definitely more. He ended his life in a relationship with a man, but he definitely had strategic relationships with women. He was told by Marilyn Monroe, basically, to sleep with anybody who had power that could do more for him, you know, and he did. <laughs> so, you know that whole idea of the transactional nature of sex and whose pleasure is it if it's done under this power, this this disproportionate power dynamic between employer and employee, you know, is it Juanita Moore's fault for being wayward in the first place? Is it, you know, it it plays in this kind of Judeo-Christian landscape of sexuality, but it's also playing in its face by casting queer people to play straight people and by, you know, so it's just funny to me that people are like, oh, can we have a, a gay movie star who's leading man? Most of Hollywood history is gay movie stars who are leading men. There's about, like 90% of them are gay, <laughs> you know? And we find out years later, all sorts of people are bisexual. You know, uh, Quincy Jones spilled all the tea. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, <laughs> you know, so I, I do think that Cirque is doing it on purpose. I do think that, they, like, they know behind like and you brought up John Waters, which I think is a brilliant because uh juxtaposition because Waters is definitely dipping into Cirque's pond and trying to like just take all of the subtext out and just make it a queer, radical free for all, you know? Uh which I love about John Waters. So I think there's but t- but similarly to John Waters, Cirque has a troupe. This troupe of actors, you don't really see them to the same degree outside of his work. They're not as good. They're not as interesting, you know? And I think Waters has a similar kind of relationship to his cast of, of characters, you know, like an actress like Cookie Mueller, who I, you know, on World AIDS Day, you know, God bless her soul, you know, she passed from AIDS. But I couldn't see, I don't know how she works with anybody else except John Waters. I don't know how um, Juanita Moore could be any better than she could be with Douglas Sirk. I mean, certainly with like Hudson was never, yeah. he's great in seconds, but he's better in right. these. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Hudson, you know, there's also Cirque's very clear fascination with his performers and that type of like passionate interest in the actor, I think is also kind of, it's jarring nowadays because 
a lot of people feel like we're in an age where the movie star is no longer really a thing, mm-hmm. you know? And to Cirque, that could never be true, right? To him, the director's job is to see that star quality and to, you know, accentuate all of it around that star quality. Whereas I think today, the norm is more so to kind of dress the stars down to make them feel like they're just like us. And they are mostly like us, except they're millionaires with trainers and (laughs) skin regimens. Yeah, people whose muscles don't work like ours do because they've been doing things to them for 25 years in gyms. Um, exactly. but, yeah, but no, like you're right. Um, Cirque deals in actors as icons, like literally iconography, not movie star icons. But like he's got Troy Donahue and Sandra Dee, who are who are these yeah. these emblems of what 50s culture was and what it couldn't be when the 60s came through. Like they are the last squares, I yes. think. Yes. Um, maybe Kirk Douglas would carry that forward for a little while longer, but he was already older. Like this is the, mm. the generation and, you know, like, and John Gavin, who a year from now is in uh, the Ten Commandments or Spartacus yeah. or one of, yeah. one of them where, or maybe both of them, where right. he is just so completely out of place and, and he could only be a white man in the 1950s. Like he couldn't do yes. period stuff. He could not, he would not convince. And, right. or no, it's Ben-Hur. Of course it's Ben-Hur. Um, but it's fascinating to watch the films, this film specifically, it's like right on the cusp, as you say, of the civil rights era coming in and changing everything and seeing what will and won't carry forward. Mm-hmm. And maybe yeah. that's why like Cirque never worked in Hollywood again. Like that was, this is his last studio picture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also like, that's the, the thing about it too, is that when you're at a certain point in oppressive systems, you have a choice is to either, you know, normalize the oppression that you go through so that you can survive. Mm-hmm. And I think most people make that that choice. And even in the inspection, you know, I've gotten some criticism over, you know, where is the pushback? Why, why can't he just drown him? And, you know, nothing happens to him because that's how it works. <laughs> that's life. That's what happens. People with power do bad things and they continue to have power. That's the world we live in, you know, and we have to make a choice. Will we submit to that power to have a little bit more or will we rebel against that power and risk of losing everything? And I think most people will submit to that power to have more. But the problem with that submission, especially as an artist, is that sometimes it dulls your instincts and you're not able to be on your toes and adjust to the new era that's coming up. And, and Cirque, you know, to his credit, such a huge, huge, you know, outsized influence on, on, you know, the, the late period of classic Hollywood. Right. But, Unfortunately, that when you're when you're a pioneer, people are watching, and John Waters was watching him, and as you said, you know, um, later on David Lynch was watching him, but I think Igmar Bergman was watching him. I think a lot of people that we wouldn't typically associate with Douglas Sirk, um, uh, Godard, uh, like huge Godard, fan, Godard watched him. So now you know all these young kids are coming up, and they're like, "You want to do an emotional? Let's cut everything on emotion. Let's not even do any intri- like establishing shots or no mediums, no wides. Everything is handheld. Everything is close-up. Everything is, let's move it faster, faster, faster. And I think, you know, because he came up in a world, he came to these innovations through the lens of oppression and censorship, I think maybe that kind of dulled his abilities to be flexible as time went forward and, and to, you know, like, he wasn't going to make Easy Rider. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he wasn't gonna make, you know, any of those those the, that classic, you know, seventies uh, or even sixties cinema. You know, Midnight Cowboy. I think would be a movie that could be very interesting with Douglas Sirk at the helm. You know, but case of Rastara, you know, that's what happens. We're already sort of heading in that direction, but uh, I, I wanted to ask the question I always ask on the podcast, mm-hmm. which is: Is there anything of 
imitation of life that you have borrowed or homaged or full-on stolen in your own work. It, I, the inspection has some thematic parallels, but I didn't really recognize a Circean influence visually. Oh, well, I mean, I think the color, the, 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 the richness of the color palette, especially when it's deviating outside of the Marine Corps world and we're inside the inner life of French, um, is something that I would say is of Circean influence, if not necessarily how Cirque would do it. Mm -hmm. um, I think the character themselves, like Cirque has these incredible women in his movies. And um, I think Gabrielle Union's appearance in the film is something that Douglas Cirque you know, would probably do. I don't know what part he would have Gabby play. I don't even really <laughs> want to know <laughs> today. But, you know, that kind of, his, the way he uses casting is something that's very influential to me, right? And understanding, like, you know, I don't want to get too shrewd because I don't want people to lose their, you know, it's fun to be the new guy. People <laughs> think you're so innocent sometimes. But um, <laughs> there's something to Gabrielle being this incredible, you know, queer rights advocate, you know, for her daughter, Zaya, who's trans, and even beyond her, her own family. She's always kind of put her neck on the line for LGBTQ people. There's something I think kind of sticky about her playing against that in my film, right? And I think it's very sticky in a way that maybe not as um, I don't know illicit as the Lana Turner casting after her incident with Stompinato, or the alleged incident with Stompinato. Um, but nonetheless, it, it's sticky, right? It, for those fans that Gabby has all over the world, I think everyone's going to have a you know, tilt their head a little bit scratch their, their their chin at that casting. And I think Cirque does that well. And I think, you know, if anything, the kind of restrained nature of the queer gaze within the film, in that, you know, there's a version of the inspection that could be way more um, overtly sexual. And, um, and I tend to lean on the side of the sensual in this film. Mm -hmm. um, and that is something that I see Cirque doing in his time and, and, and that the the cultural forces that Cirque was fighting against in 1959, sure, things have definitely progressed in 2022, but there's still a lot of work to do. You know, as a Black queer person, I've rarely seen my anyone like me as the hero of a movie. And I really do believe that, you know, people pay to see themselves on screen, to see better versions of themselves on screen. And if you're not on screen, that says something about your value to the society that you live in, Right. Um, however, I, I had to have some conversations around the casting of this film just to say that I want an out black queer actor to play this part and having to say that maybe Cirque would not be allowed to say that in 1959, but the same pressure exists between these two works, right? When you, or when you're, or rather in his, in his oof overall, the idea that you know, you're playing within an industry that has a certain expectation of value around who's on screen and what they can then turn over in terms of audience conversion. And Cirque navigates that. You, he has to be very particular about how he's addressing sex and race in his films in a way that I have to be particular in how I address these topics in my film. Because it's still a business and the business, you know, it, 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 it is 
it's so hard to make a movie. It's so hard to make a successful movie that to some degree precedent is the only standard to judge whether or not a movie could or couldn't succeed. Right. And I think well, that, that's how people convince themselves not to make stuff all the time, right? Because there's never been anything like this. It's never made any money. Why should we attempt it? But the attempt, attempt is the reason to do it. That's what I think. That's what I think. Um, but yeah, but I think in that way, we're both kind of, it, he's gay, right? Isn't Sir gay? He has to be gay. He was married to a, a woman. Um, and as far as I could tell, there was no direct expression of homosexuality. I mean, it doesn't mean he wasn't, right? Wasn't, it, yeah. he was, the man was born in 1890-something. Right. Uh, there aren't a lot of records. But no, he was married twice, in fact. Mm. Um, well, and, the, the, um, the lack of success at it. I, I don't, I don't <laughs> want to dig deeply into it. But all that to say, I feel like this is, a, if, if he's not queer, at least this is a person with a very kind of outsider gaze. I know he's German, so maybe that maybe that's what it is that makes him feel queer to me you know yeah i mean but, you can you can definitely find some some outsider aspects of himself as even as a german citizen his first wife after their divorce joined the nazi party and legally barred him from seeing their son because his second wife was jewish which is one of the reasons he left germany wow so he definitely wow. knew what it was like to feel you know on the side of the oppressed anyway right but like you know in that in that regard having a mind towards progress in an industry that requires predictability mm -hmm. will cause you to make very specific choices around how you represent people. Um, but yeah, you know, but hopefully I'll get to do more films and I can show even more of, you know, what I, what I like from Cirque, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I would love to see you take on uh, written on the wind just to see what happens. <laughs> it would be fun. That would be fun. My thanks to Elegance Bratton, whose new film, The Inspection, is in theaters now and opening at the Tiff Bell Lightbox this Friday, December 9th. Thanks also to Angie Power. She knows what she did. You can find Elegance on Twitter at Langston Cruz, all one word, L-A-N-G-S-T-O-N-C-R-U-I-S-E. And you can find Imitation of Life on Blu-ray and DVD from Universal Studios Home Entertainment. It's also available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash Semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.